Guten Morgen, Paul. Good, good, come in, Paul. Uh, take a seat. Um, look, we, we need to have a talk, my friend. Oh, what's up, Dr. He-Man Skeletor? Um, I need a bit of a break, Paul. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a little bit overloaded with uh, the DCOCD. So I, I need to take some some time out for some self-care. You, you, di- you dig me? Um, so if you read the instructions on the card I've just given you, uh, and you, if you leave the office now, you should make this boss ask for Dr. Quackenbacker. He'll, he'll help you for the next couple of weeks. That, that bus has bars on the window, Doctor. There's a guy with a knife on board the bus. What's that about? Okay, it goes through a rough part of town. Oh, okay. So, all right, I'll get on the bus with all these other interesting people. That guy's licking the window. I've been saying, have a nice time. Yeah, okay. Woke up this morning I suddenly realized We're all in this together I started smiling Cause you were smiling And we're all in this together I'm made of atoms You're made of atoms And we're all in this together And long division doesn't matter cause we're all in this together Hello and welcome to DCOCD, the DC Events podcast, where we're looking at every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths in chronological order until we get to crap like this. So we've reached <laughs> 2007 and we're going to look at a comic uh, event and... Is this an event? I, I struggled with this because it has the, all the um, hallmarks of an event, but I don't think it really is an event. But um, this is where my OCD took over, and I said I had to put it on the list. We are talking about Salvation Run, which is an event that's a sub-event of Countdown to Final Crisis, I, I would say, technically. Um, but I'm not doing this alone. I'm joined by a man who has uh, taken the podcasting world by storm in the last few years. I don't know where he came from, but he's here now, and we can't get rid of him. It's Sean Ross. I, I like to think of myself as the STI of the podcasting community. <laughs> you don't know where you got me, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and it's good to pass you on. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm going to regret that that simile. Uh, thank you for having me, man. I, I'm going to gush for a second. I freaking love your shows. Uh, I love you know, Waiting for Doom. I love DC OCD. I, I'm literally the first person to post on WaitingForDoom.com, so suck it, Tim Price. And uh, <laughs> I say that with love. And, uh, yeah, so I'm just a big fan, and I'm really excited to be on the show. And, and actually, I'm pretty excited for what I got to be on the show because it's, it's not Genesis. So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, so what are we looking at? It's Salvation Run. It came out in 2007. It was seven issues. Um, it just sneaks into being a, an event because it actually has some tie-in issues that which happened in Catwoman, so like uh, 75 to 78 or something. So this was the Will Pfeiffer Catwoman run, um, and it was written by Bill Willingham, who bailed on it, and it was taken over by <laughs> Lila Sturgis, who finished it off, and it had art by Sean Chen, Walden Wong, uh, Wayne Foucher, and Joe Bennett. 
and uh, it had covers by Sean Chen with uh, Joe Coroney, Walden Wong and Neil Adams did a special cover and uh, lettered by Steve Wands with Ken Lopez and coloured by John Callis and Thomas Chu and it was all edited by Joey Cavalieri, a Hunter's Connection there. Hey, Yeah, so Sean, what do you think this one is about? Uh, so just to summarize quickly, the, the DC Universe has apparently gotten sick of the villains causing untold levels of damage and Somehow, we don't actually ever get this part of the story. They find a planet to send them to, and somehow, we don't ever get this part of the story, they find the mechanism by which to send them. They get access to boom tube technology, and they gather the villains. They have other villains capture them, like Deadshot and Bane and the Suicide Squad, basically, and they send them all to this planet, which is supposed to be peaceful, but is, in fact, filled with technological nightmares out of, like, a John Carpenter plot and they are consistently attacked, and they must find a way not only to survive, but to get back home. So it's a, it's a very cool idea. The, the plot itself, the, the pitch of the series is really, really interesting. Execution's different. I guess we'll get to that. But I, I think the plot is interesting. I mean, I, it, I definitely bought it when I heard about it. Just hearing you describe it, then, it's like, oh, cool. I'd like to read that. And then, um, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> match what I read. But <laughs> I definitely should have worked for DC Solicitation. <laughs> I think what happened is they they saw how everything worked so well with the lead up to um, Countdown to Infinite Crisis, and we had all these side stories and mm-hmm. um, added layers, etc. Um, except they were good, and <laughs> this is kind of this is an idea executed in a kind of half baked way, and it doesn't really have. I mean, I, I don't think the creativity in this idea was generated by the writers who actually executed it in the end, because no one really seems to know, you know, what the deal is here as far as. You know why these people have been put here, and um, how they're going to get off. It's all very. Um, let's just end the story now because it's you know it's over. Instead of this is the culmination of where the story was going. But is there anything about it that you think is really good? I mean, the, lots of stuff happens, but do you, you know what was the bits that actually um, hit you and went, oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I think the idea is interesting. I I imagine in my mind, Salvation Run came about probably the way most ideas came about from extreme studios in the 90s. Like, Rob Liefeld just stumbles high into the office and is like, oh, villains on a planet, but the planet attacks them, go. Like, I feel like that's what happened with this book, <laughs> is some editor just got an idea. And it is an interesting one. I mean, it's, you know, Planet Hulk is kind of around this time. So, you know, there's a there's something in the ether about sending people off planet for, for punishment. I, so I like the idea. I like that it's the rogues that open issue one. And in fact, issue one is really pretty good. I, I definitely was hooked on the series when I first read it because the rogues are the narrators, Captain Cold's narrating. And, you know, he's talking about this planet, they're being attacked. And then they, they find these other camps of, of villains and they all have to sort of unite. I mean, it's kind of lost, you know, that, that was in the ether as well. And so it starts off with real promise. So if I'm going to give praise, I'll, I'll praise the beginning um, there's a couple interesting choices by villains. There's two villains in here called the Body Doubles. And at one point, their little group is off and Hellhound, who's a villain, gets injured while they're all fighting off whatever this planet is. And, and we can reveal that secret in a minute. And he gets injured and the other villains are like, all right, later, like we can't, we're not taking him with us. And the Body Doubles are like, no, we're not leaving him. And we're a group. We have to stay together. And you think, oh, okay, maybe this is a story about finding some nobility, you know, amidst criminals. 
And yet what happens a little bit later is they encounter more of these monsters from the, this planet and they throw Hellhound's wounded body at the monsters so they have time to run away. So there's some nice little character moments like that I, I think are cool, a little reminder of the different facets of what villainy can look like. But those moments are, are few and far between. <laughs> are there any, any moments you'd highlight as, as working well? No, but I would like to point out that I did see Hellhound die in uh, War Games. So at this point, he's oh. turning into Kenny. Oh my God, we killed Hellhound! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I'd forgotten. I couldn't even remember where I knew him from. In fact, at one point, I'm like, "Isn't that Patsy Walker's husband?" And I'm like, "Oh wait, no." <laughs> Wrong. No, he's a Birds of Prey uh, a villain. I think that um, Chuck Dixon created. He has a Chuck Dixon feel to him. I, I, I sensed that. I was definitely. <laughs> he had a little waft of that to him. I was like, oh, I, I think this is probably Dixon. Uh, I did you like what about the? So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the the villains basically go through villainous little subplots. Some are are work. Some work better than the others. And in the end, in order to get home, Luther makes a sacrifice. He, ha- he has to effectively sacrifice five villains who can power the machine to send them home. And he, he seems to wrestle with that choice, but then he does it. And then he, as they're dying and the boom tube is about to close and he's running through it, he gives this awesome speech about like, you guys are lucky, you get to die, but I'm the hero. I'm the one who saved the day. And he has this nice little narcissist moment right as he's running out the door. So I thought that was a nice choice to a little bit of storytelling. So there, it has its moments. Yeah, I, I'll say what I like the most, and I don't know if you got the chance to read it, but I thought the Catwoman issues were much better than the main series. So Because one thing that Catwoman comes to this series with is baggage with some of the other villains so mm-hmm. there are several of the other vil- villains who actually want to kill her on site for things that happened in her own book um, and she basically has to navigate that avoid cheetah cheetah is always trying to kill her and then she has to um, manipulate hammer and sickle the uh, the russian villains and at one stage she discovers that uh, the the character of blockbuster is actually the martian manhunter in disguise and she ends up in a situation where people are suspicious of her and her role there because she's sort of chummy with Batman. And then she throws uh, Martian Manhunter under a bus to survive. And it's it's quite a good Catwoman moment. Yeah. Um, and that's in the main series as well. But um, I, I thought her issues, for one thing, they have stronger art, they have better story, and they have higher stakes because mm-hmm. there's so many characters in this book that after a while they just become... Uh, diminished by their presence so you see a character like Bane who has you know quite a lot of strong arcs in DC continuity and goes up and down the villain charts quite a lot but he's basically at the bottom of the dip in this one and he's just a, a hired hand really and he doesn't have any agency in this like too many of the villains just become followers in this and mm-hmm. they either follow Luther or Joker because editorially that's where the story said that things have to go and that's the thing I mean Luther and Joker on this uh, in this plot are safe because editorial mandates that they must be safe and they are the most important villains here, and everyone else is secondary to that. And I think it could have been a lot more interesting if all the villains sort of had their character head just to do as they wanted to. Yeah. So uh, that was one of the things that uh, struck me about it. But, yeah, the Catwoman issues are, are much better than... If the whole event had been like the Catwoman issues, it would have been a really strong event. Well, and I think that's that's one of the things that's missing from this event for me is a strong narrative voice. And we get hints of it in issue one, you know, when it's the rogues, but they switch narrators every issue. Like, and it's it's weird because again, I think that was probably editorial because Willingham and Sturgis have done better work than this, but it feels very um, 
it feels like a weird choice because all of a sudden we're in one person's head and then another and then another. And you're right. They all just wash out eventually. They all just become sort of nameless, faceless bad guys. I think had, had they made the choice to go with one narrator and it, you know, had they maybe, maybe done an interesting thing and gone with a minor villain who really could die so that you're, you know, you're sitting through the whole series with tension. Cause you know, Luther, Luther's not dying and you know, Joker's not dying and all of that. But you know, had it been somebody with, with some actual stakes that might've made the premise work a little bit better, but it definitely becomes, I, it felt a little bit like secret society of supervillains or something like they just wanted, it's almost like they wanted dynamic covers, you know, and there's a, like, there's a moment this, and this is my low point in the series where Mansoor Mala, or as Shag calls him, Monsignor Mala, uh, <laughs> and now Rabbi Mala actually did my wedding, but not Monsignor Mala. So my, uh, Mala and the brain go to Grodd, who's kind of Joker's second in charge. And they're like, hey, hey, can we talk to you privately? And, and it seems like there's this big plan, right? Because it's the brain and Mala. Yeah. And Mala's just like, hey, you're a gorilla. I'm a gorilla. Like, let's do this. And I'm like, wait, what? That's your big plan? Like, we're both gorillas? Like, I don't, I don't think that's how this works. And then Grodd beats Mala to death with the brain, which is just so needlessly violent and extreme that it, it really did feel like Sturgis and Willingham were handed a sheet of paper. Here's the premise. Here's some beats. Go write this thing. And, and it, you can tell as you get further into the mini that they're literally just, you know, it's paint by numbers. Yeah, and that work, uh, that scene doesn't work at all because uh, there's an absurdist quality to the to Mallor and the brain that needs to mm-hmm. work in an absurd context, pretty much, or you know, a old-fashioned supervillain context. And as soon as you you know introduce sort of real-world violence to it, it uh, you, there's a disconnect between you using these kind of fun, goofy characters in this horribly violent situation, and it's it's like Bugs Bunny in Reservoir Dogs suddenly. <laughs> which actually DC might try that a little bit now that they have those characters. <laughs> you never know. But that might be coming soon. Yeah, it just you're right, it doesn't work. It, it's it's almost like in cra- in crafting the mini, they thought, okay, well, you know, these guys have some cachet cuz they have that one great issue of Doom Patrol. You know, let's let's remind people that they're together in a couple. Like, ooh, that's edgy. And it's like, no, it's it doesn't work in this setting. Like you said, it it and the Joker uh, so you know, if we're going to stay on some low points, Every scene with the Joker and with his bastard child kid Carnival, who is just a character I never need to see again, <laughs> they are so poorly written. They're, they're painted with such a wide brush of like, you know, hey, I'm crazy. You'll never know what I'm going to do next. Instead of any sort of com- you know complexity or nuance or or being crazy in a way that's interesting or compelling, that him getting so much real estate in his mini just kills it for me because it's a, it's a version of the Joker. I have no interest in I, I Did you find him interesting or compelling? No, he's quite intolerable. And I mean, from a story point of view, it would make more sense if all the villains tried to kill the Joker constantly. Yes. Cause he's a total threat to them. Like he, he is, you know, he's not rational, he's dangerous. And a lot of them have him outgunned at all times, but consistently in this story people stand around and wait for him to do something horrible to them and mm-hmm. you know the uh, iron cross the the nazi villain you know gets shot in the face by the joker because he stands there and listens to him instead of you know punching him <laughs> superpower being and it would be a much more interesting plot if everyone decided let's get the joker and out of the way because he is too dangerous to hang around with mm-hmm. and the joker was on you know on the run and picking them off. And, that, and that's the other thing. This story is just begging for some sort of mystery or yes. whodunit or something. Like, 
people should be dying and no one knows who's doing it. That should be the sort of shenanigans that go on on the villain planet. Um, instead, whereas everyone is very upfront, like, I'm the Joker and I'm leading this group and I'm Lex Luthor and I you know, believe in science and mm-hmm. I will lead this group. And then you've got oh, the Vandal Savage, I just want to have sex with women and these are the women I want to do it with. Oh, God. And that is, you know, I didn't think comics were still doing that in 2007, but apparently they are. I I had forgotten, or or maybe my mind was protecting me. I had completely blacked out that Vandal Savage subplot. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh no, 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 this can't be what they're what they're trying to do. And it just keeps going and going. And then it just kind of peters out, and you're like, well, that's not okay. There's no comeuppance. There's no like, I don't know, he doesn't learn anything from it. Uh, the one thing I will say, one saving grace of it, is when the villains divest themselves into the Lex Luthor and Joker. It is eerily prescient of American politics today. (laughs) So I have to say, (laughs) reading it felt a lot like being on Twitter. And so I did at least appreciate that. Like I felt like, oh, this hell planet with all of these insane people is a lot like what it's like to be an American right now. And so that part was okay. But yeah, the the Joker stuff was just ridiculous. And I, you know, the art, um, Sean Chen is, is kind of the imagined dragons of artists for me. Like, if I see him, I'm not going to run away, but I'm not going to seek him out. Like, I just don't really <laughs> – he just doesn't do anything for me. I, yeah, I mean, that was the best comparison I could think of. I was like, what does he remind me of? And I'm like, oh, really bland corporate music. And so, he, you know, he's a solid draftsman, and, you know, I'm sure there's people out there who are big fans of his, but he's the, – the, the story is told, and that's great, and I don't want to diminish him, but there's no spark to it. And I, and that this is a book that needed something different. This needed, it needed a spark. It needed something weird or off kilter to make it work. And, and he's just not, he can't bring that. You're going to regret that comment when the next wave of artists who are influenced by Imagine Dragons come up. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I, I can't even, it, I was trying to think of who they, the Imagine Dragons. I'm like, oh, they're like the inheritors of Collective Soul. Remember Collective Soul in the 90s? That was the, the, craft american cheese of bands like it's just the word it's just the, the it's striving for mediocrity so and i, I know people are yelling at the, <laughs> the radio right now who love him like there's some guy right now listening who's got imagine dragons tattooed on one arm and like collective soul on the other and he got his wedding song was like heaven let your light shine down followed by believer or something <laughs> and, and i'm gonna get some you're gonna get some hate mail just anything like that just addressed to waiting for doom it is the sean ross <laughs> way to get hate mail but i mean it definitely is anything that goes wrong on secret wars and beyond i frame it so it looks like it's greg arugio's fault that's that's kind of my mo <laughs> but, and actually speaking of secret wars and beyond so on our show, and I hope you don't mind me doing this, uh, on our show, we do a little thing where we'd like to spring secret questions on each other, kind of related to the episode, just to, to ask a question and kind of catch the person off guard and see what they'll say. So, so yeah, Salvation Run is an, an event tie-in to Countdown and Final Crisis. So, so Paul Hicks, what is an event tie-in or mini or special or comic that launched out of an event? That outshines the actual event for you. Oh, I need some thinking music for this. <laughs> so, to qualify this, I can say a comic that was launched out of an event, or yeah, like Valor out of you know Eclipso or something. Oh well, easy answer. I would say um, Ostrander Suicide Squad out of Legends is um, yeah that leaves uh, Legends for Dead and builds something amazing. And uh, I mean, it probably would have happened anyway without Legends, but Legends was the the launching point they chose. So. 
That's really good. Is there a mini or special that's attached to an event that you think is better than the event? Uh, probably the, um, the the big one is the countdown to Infinite Crisis because that had some really good stuff. I, I think the OMAC project, just the level of you know craft that uh, Greg Rucker brings to those sorts of stories and Jesus Sire's art in that is fantastic but uh, it, it, it's a very serious story really well executed and it, it just fits in with sort of Greg Rucker's um, oeuvre and his collection of works so yeah I think that's a really good one too that's a really good choice. I When I was crafting the question, the, the thing that popped in my mind first, which you guys will get to in the very near future, is Superman Beyond out of Final Crisis, which I, I don't want to spoil. I mean, I know you'll get to Final Crisis relatively soon. I love Grant Morrison, and I have read pretty much everything that guy's ever written. I still can't make heads or tails out of Final Crisis. <laughs> and so it's the minis around it that really buoy it for me. And Superman Beyond in particular is one of my like probably 10 favorite Superman stories. Well, I have a secret question for you, Sean. Ooh, ooh, awesome, yes. Given this collection of villains, and if this was a Battle Royale situation, which villain would come out on top? That's a really good question. And I, I would have actually liked that. I would have liked this to have been the Royal Rumble of the DC Universe. I think, okay, given who's there, I think Grodd is definitely in the final match, just that mix of ferocity and and mind manipulation. I think Vandal Savage is in the final match because he just has an, a, a knack for surviving. And I would say this, oh, I would say the surprise, like, third guy in, in the end is probably Tar Pit, <laughs> the, that Flash Rogue. Because what the hell? Like, if you've ever stepped in tar, there's just no way to kill him. So I'm going to say in the end, in the end, I'm going to go Grodd. I think Grodd comes out on top and wins the day and then just eats everybody. And that's that. that and which, by the way, would have been a way more interesting, satisfying end to Salvation Run. <laughs> what about you? Who do you see coming out on top? Grodd would have been my obvious choice because he had sort of gone up the uh, the power ladder significantly under Jeff Johns's pen. Um, so he's, you know, got the... The psychic ability and the uh, vicious uh, physical presence, but I would have thought um, Savannah, Doctor Savannah, is relegated to being just a lackey to Luther Ooh. in this, and I think that isn't really consistent, particularly because we've just seen him in Fifty Two, where he's one of the, you know, the major players on Oolong. Um, so I would say that he would be uh, a real danger. Mm. Like he would be killing people left and right without the, anyone seeing it coming just because he's so good with uh, technology. And in fact, I think of him as way more of the technologist than Luther in this case. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see him hack the planet and really make a, a play. But you're right, he's relegated to just uh, a side character. And I, I don't have a great handle on him as a character because I wasn't a huge Captain Marvel fan as a kid. And so for me, he's always been kind of the scrawny like the guy on Oolong Island who was less interesting than Tio Morrow. Uh, and so I, I, I wouldn't have thought of him, but now that you've said that, yeah, he would have been pretty great. So, whereas I think Vandal, I mean, I think someone would have taken him out pretty early, actually, because <laughs> he's, uh, he's got arrogance and power, but, um, yeah, he tends to underestimate everyone else. I would just like to think the women on the planet would have taken him out just for that awful, awful supply, which is, it's so distasteful that I almost, uh, in my notes for this, I was like, 
does it do i bring this up <laughs> like do i do i even mention it or we just leave it leave it in the past <laughs> yeah i mean and it, it, you seem to forget in the story because it's so downplayed that scandal savage is also on the planet so and she's you know if you've read this secret six she's a major mm-hmm. uh, force to reckon with well and having her and her father on the same planet and not showing that confrontation was a, a, a just a missed opportunity i mean yeah that's talk about you know, stacking the deck with characters and then just treating them like, you know, pieces in a board game. It, it really didn't work. Yeah. Now I do want to talk about the title of this event. Do you think the title is absolutely terrible or good? So I, I do think it's a great title for a mini series where there is actually a story about salvation and running, but this is not that title. It's really good. I mean, it's, I would see a movie called salvation run. Like it's a, it's a really good title. So again, Somebody had a, a great elevator pitch, they had the title behind it, and they had nothing more. And so I like it, but there's no quest for salvation here. No one here is, you know, is trying to save anything other than their own collective butts. And there's no run here. I mean, they're not running towards some goal. They're just trying to not kill themselves or each other. It, you know, well, Luther does some magic thing on the side and, and creates a boom tube. So great title, but not for this, not for this book. And that brings us to the the point of this whole story, which is apparently a plan by uh, New God's lackey Dassard to create more parademons out of supervillains. And it's just like saying, haha, I've got a billion M&Ms, but I will make these people into M&Ms as well. And then I will have a billion <laughs> and 20 M&Ms. And <laughs> it, it's a really dumb reason to do this. I, I actually missed that. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I didn't pick up on the fact that he was trying to turn them into, into, into M&Ms, into parademons. I thought this just happened to be a, a training planet for parademons. And he, like through shenanigans, they directed the, the plot of the Suicide Squad to send the villains to a planet. They directed it here almost to like see to, to make the planet's defenses better for parademons. Yeah, no, yeah, it's in the it's in the final page dialogue of like chapter five or something. Where he's just saying, and, so I missed that whole point. Yeah, well, it's it's an easy one to miss because it's dumb. Uh, but there it is. Well, and, you know, I think I might have blacked it out by that point because, like I said, issue one's really good, and issue two's a little less good, and then you get this run of just bad issues. So you realized I wasn't paying maybe full attention to that moment. It, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad you pointed it out. That that adds a at least there was some more thought to the plot than I'm giving them credit for. But uh, yeah, definitely not a run for salvation. I, I think, you know, a better title might have just been like a bunch of us standing around and the Joker sucks. Like that might have been that probably is what it should have been called and it would have sold a million copies. Yeah, or they could have gone with the uh, to tie in with Countdown to Infinite Crisis. They could have called it Villains Divided or something. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see when uh, people pick through the list of DCOCD list, uh, episodes to listen to if they latch on to Salvation Run, because I do think people choose by the familiarity of the title, and I think this is going to be one of the lowest on that uh, register for them. So one of the things we look at with events is uh, what type of event it is and what it launched. Um, this one is... it's. This is the occupying of an occupier, so it's 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 really off to the <laughs> side. So it hasn't really got its own focus. It's merely just a uh, a garnish on another event, and a pretty bad one at that. Um, on both sides, it's a bad meal with bad garnish. Uh, just so we're clear. <laughs> um, but launched out of this, uh, I can't think of anything that was launched out of this. I mean, the the most important outcome of all of this is that Martian Manhunter ends up imprisoned in a 
a cage that is somehow on fire. I don't know why it's on fire. It's never explained. Um, heat wave seems to be heating it up at one point, but that's not how cages work. Um, nope. <laughs> so, and at the start of um, the lead, the very lead up to Final Crisis is about the Martian Manhunter getting uh, snuffed. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, this is weird, but that's kind of the only important thing that happens at the end of this. Um, everyone goes back to status quo. There's a bunch of villains who die, but they all turn up uh, alive later. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure if Thunder and Lightning do, but um, who cares, either way? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but, you know, I've definitely seen Warp since then, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it's odd. But anyway, uh, this has no real impact and legacy to say it's um, part of something that is best forgotten and um, it's a little part of that. Yeah, it's. I, I like that you said it was an occupier of an occupier. It's it's the Cato Kalin of comic books. I mean, just it's literally a house guest that no one wants. And I I can't remember anything that. I, in fact, I have to ask you a question. I, and I'm a I'm like a pretty diehard comic book fan, and I usually know my stuff. How does the Martian Manhunter get from he? They leave him on Hell Planet in that cage, that fiery cage that does defies the laws of physics, and then in Final Crisis One. Libra and the other villains, the human flame kills him on Earth, right? Yeah. So how does he get from Hell Planet to Earth? Does that is that ever explained? Uh, I believe it is, and I cannot remember it. But someone says go get him, and they basically go get him. So I, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it <laughs> could right. be Libra because Libra is sort of I can do anything that's convenient for the plot at this point with his that's powers. That's true. So yeah, I mean that's Libra's big. Hey, I'm a, I'm a badass. But that yeah, that kicks off things later. Well, and I think it was in, in poor taste that in Salvation Run 7, they show John in the fiery cage, and the ad next to that page is for Final Crisis 1, and it says, where were you when the Martian Manhunter died? And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I was reading Spoilers. this comic getting spoiled. Exactly, yeah. So I, that part was a little surprising, you know, and, and it's and it's funny because I for, had forgotten that about Final Crisis as well. I mean, Final Crisis is, and again, I said this earlier, I love Grant Morrison, but I feel like he is, I don't know what he's doing in Final Crisis. I cannot wait to hear your DC OCD episode of that. Just, I mean, I, I can't wait to see what you guys think of it. And, and I'm hoping you can maybe decipher it for me. <laughs> oh, okay. We will do our best. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, we might play your, your lovely promo and then we'll come back Woo-hoo. and we'll do the scoring on this thing. All right. The world's strongest hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. So, the way the scoring works is we want to come up with a 100-point score for this event, and the way we do it is Sean and I, we will 
come up with uh, four categories of 10 points each with a potential total score between the two of us of 80. And to get the last 20, we will have someone who we designate the semi-OCD give their score and then we halve their score. So it's the same basis as ours, but not as important because it's not us. Um, and in this case, we have Diablo Frank from the uh, Martian Manhunter Idol Head of Diablo uh, podcast. And yeah, I, I think it was worth him weighing in on this because he read it recently and criticised it on another podcast. So um, <laughs> <laughs> timely. But anyway, the first category that we score is eventiness. Sean, where do you put this on the eventiness scale? Uh, to quote Animal House, 0. 0.0. The, uh, there's nothing here. I mean, this is... So I, I, I'm going to do a Frank-style rant for a second. This is Dan DiDio at his most intrusive. I mean, he is human editorial fiat at this moment. And Grant Morrison came to them, and a lot of people know the backstory of Final Crisis. Grant Morrison came to DiDio and was like, hey, I have this idea. It's, it's this new form of storytelling I'm going to try out. And it's going to involve DC and stuff, but I'm just going to do it on the side, like this little story. And Didier's like, no, you're Grant Morrison. It'll be a big seller. You know, we're going to build up to it the way we did before. And Grant's like, all right, whatever, dude, here are my notes. And they tried to decipher the notes of Grant Morrison, you know, which should be written on a wall somewhere with Indiana Jones trying to decipher them. And they did all this build up. You know, you guys covered Countdown and this came in there as well. And it's it's definitely it reads like a miniseries written in PowerPoint slides. And and so it, it definitely reads like it came from somebody's notes. And it has, like we said earlier, it has no, there's no, there's nothing to it. And it's part of a bigger event in that it's attached to Countdown and Final Crisis, except no one remembers it and nothing came of it. So I couldn't, I, and I'm not somebody, I mean, I, I'm a teacher, man. I, you know, if I secretly enjoyed you know, crushing people with bad scores, I would become a teacher. Yeah, never mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would be something like a, a teacher. Uh, so, but, so I don't like giving things a zero. I like finding the hope in things. I like sort of seeing some light in the darkness, but I, it's, it's a zero for me. There's nothing there. Right. Um, I'm, well, I, uh, yeah, I, I can't disagree with you too much, but I, I'll give it a two just because it had a nice array of villains. Um, and some of them brought their personalities and previous histories and some didn't, uh, yeah, so, I mean, on paper, the eventiness of this sounds pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to fall back on that a bit and give it a two. I Now, I have to say, I can't wait for John Byrne to come back and, and reboot it and tell it in his own way, because that's what he does, and so I'm excited <laughs> for that eventuality. <laughs> Salvation Run, year one. Right. Um, now, when it comes to the art and covers, it, I would say Sean Chen's art is mostly um, adequate. Mostly mm -hmm. adequate. Yeah, it, it, that was one thing that struck me was when I read the Catwoman tie-ins because it had art by David Lopez. The art was that much better. It was set on the same location, but uh, everything just popped a bit more and it looked more alien. Like this is kind of, um, you know, pseudo jungle most of the time with metal tentacles popping out and attacking people with, um, yeah, so, and yeah, in some cases it doesn't mesh that way. People are always talking about eating something that they just killed, and it always looks like they just killed a robot to me. <laughs> yeah. So with the writing, I I feel like this was very much just a job for some people. Uh, I thought Bill Willingham was probably a little bit more on fire than uh, Sturgis was for this. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it seemed... It's, it's, it's adequate. It tells the story. The story isn't very good, and I don't know... 
it's hard to draw the line between where the story came from, from editorial, and uh, where it came from the writer. It's it's quite hard to tell at this point. Um, so for that, I will give the writing a four. What about what about you, Sean? I'm I'm in the same general ballpark now. I actually read an interview with Bill Willingham about this miniseries and and why he left on issue three. And what he says in the interview, it's with Comic Book Resources. He says, "Look, I, I, he was sick. He had a health issue, and the, and they it was under doctor's orders to reduce his workload and reduce his stress." And he said, "Well, you know, I wasn't going to give up Fables because that's my baby." He goes, "So it was either you know give up something I love or give up this editorially mandated crap fest where characters were literally changed in my script the minute I turned them in." I mean, he did not hold back, right? Wow. And so. Yeah, so he was not happy about this book. He was not happy about the way it was unfolding. I think he left. I think the I'm sick thing, it, it rings a lot of, you know, Bart Simpson saying, ow, my ovaries to get out of a test. And I think he just didn't want to write it. And it reads like that. And I think when Lila Sturgis comes on, there's at least an earnest attempt at like, well, let's salvage this. So I, I'm, I gave it a five. I, you know, I think there's a, a really good premise there. There are a couple interesting character moments, though they're few and far between. But when I think about Salvation Run, even after having now reread it for this show, I'm not offended by it. You know, it's it's not like Countdown. Like if if you had emailed me and said, "Hey, will you do Countdown?" I, I that like it would have been like a slap in the face. And so I I'm not offended by it, but I won't remember it two minutes after we finish recording. So I just get right down the middle, gave it a five. Wow, that was such a shot at Steve and and Tim then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't meant to be at all. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't meant to be at all. I love Fantastic Cast, and Tim Price is the nicest person on the planet, so it wasn't meant to be a shot. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, with the writing, it feels like someone is doing their best, and there's editorial fingerprints all over this at different yeah. times. Uh, so I don't feel like the major story beats uh, belong to Sturgis. Uh, they feel like they've come from above, and they feel, you know unimaginative you know a writer wouldn't construct this story the way it's constructed um and i don't think a writer got the opportunity at any point in this construction so um you know uh, people are doing their best in poor circumstances Mm -hmm. yeah and i I have to say you could i mean you could smell what dan didio had for dinner in the pages of this like he's that uh, like up in the storytelling it's and it's and it really i guess i kept saying it reads like like an editorial fiat i do want to give him some credit though he deserves a, every bit of of bad press he gets for this period of DC and and you know the run all the way up to New Fifty Two and some other things. But I, I I do think the guy has learned some lessons, and I think you know I like the place DC is in now versus where it was you know a few years ago. So you know, Dio deserves some scorn, but I, I do at least want to acknowledge that I think he's grown. Yeah, uh, that was very apparent. I talked to Greg Rucker, and he said he wouldn't have come back except. You know, he got really heartfelt apologies, and they were very genuine um, mm-hmm. as far as the way he was treated, particularly the way his Wonder Woman run ended. So, his first Wonder Woman run. Interesting. Um, okay, so, Sean, what do you think of the art on this? So, I, I, I've already compared Sean Chen to Imagine Dragons and Collective <laughs> Soul. So, just to, to finish it off, it, it, his art is like tofu. I mean, I think it's just, it's there, and it can it can add a little bit to a meal, but it, you're not going to taste it. And I, I think again, solid draftsman. He sort of reminds, and I'm, I'm making so many enemies on this show. He sort of reminds me he's the Paul Ryan of the 2000s, right? Like Paul Ryan, except Paul Ryan was better, but Paul Ryan was like a good draftsman. 
I would, I never bought a book because Paul Ryan drew it, but I also never dropped a book because Paul Ryan drew it. And I feel like Sean Chen is kind of the same way. You know, he's, he's draws a, a good looking figure and, and his covers are trying really hard to be dynamic. And there's just a little spark, you know, he's, he's not going to go off and found image, but he's a really good draftsman. So I gave it a seven. I, I gave him a little bit of credit. I know I've been really hard on him, but he's a solid C artist for me. So I gave him a seven. I imagine Sean, when he got this book, it was just like, okay, I, it's, it's villains on the planet. I, how many villains? Which villains? <laughs> you know, there, there would have been a ton of uh, trying to keep track of, you know, the look and having all these characters in different situations. I mean, there are many, many pages in this book with like 40 characters on yeah. them at least. Um, and, you know, someone like George Perez goes, beauty, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. be all over that. Um, but I think it it's, would have been quite a challenge and uh, quite a pity that, you know, this is the story that he got to draw. Um, so I, I definitely hold him no will. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pile on with a musical metaphor. He's like a Mike and the Mechanics cover band. Um, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. He's, awesome. he's doing a good job with OK stuff. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's so much better. It's such a better simile than I brought. That's amazing. <laughs> so what, what score are you giving him? Um, I'm going to give it a six. A six. OK. OK. Now, Impact and Legacy... <sighs> Uh, what's the Martian Manhunter stuff worth? That's that's the only decision you have to decide here. Um, is it worth one point, two points? <laughs> um, I mean, the fact that all these characters disappear from Earth for a little while, the, there's never any ramifications, there's never any grudges to be held. You know, the, all these villains never came back and tried to kill Amanda Waller for her part in getting them on this planet. Um, yeah, it's all just forgotten. I mean, everyone who ends up dead on this planet is pretty much seen again later as though, you know, it never happened. Don't think about it. You know, and that was probably before Flashpoint rebooted everything. So, mm, mm-hmm. yeah. So I guess the Master Man and stuff with like two, perhaps? What do you think? I, I also gave it a two. And, and actually, I, for, for a different reason, though, I liked the fact that the rogues were quasi headliners. You know, they, they definitely headline issue one and then. We circle back to them a couple times, issue seven in particular. And I think there was a nice impulse at this moment, thanks to Jeff Johns, to make the rogues a, a much more prevalent part of the DC universe. And in, in Jeff Johns's hands, that was brilliant. It worked really well. There's, you know, those great one-off issues he did in his flash run about Captain Cold and Weather Wizard. And these guys were way more interesting under his auspices than I, I had ever had them be for me before. Unfortunately, when he wasn't the person leading the way, we kind of get this or we get, you know, the Bart Allen Flash series. We just get some bad moments. And so I gave it a two for just that reminder that the rogues are really interesting and probably could headline a book with the right creative team. But that's all I could do. Yeah. So I gave it a two as well. Wow. I mean, I've got a feeling uh, I could be wrong, but I've got a feeling that Frank is going to be pretty keen on this one. So let's have a listen to what he has to say. (laughs) Salvation Run is what happens when you feed American comic writers a steady diet of 21st century peak TV and European deconstructionist comics divorced from the socio-political realities that inspired all those punks in the UK who grew up in the recovery period after World War II or under Thatcher or forever in the oppressive shadow of the US. While it's second nature across the pond to take the piss out of Yankee violent fascist fantasies through satirical representations, the idiot Americans who read them typically miss the point completely and just think overzealous brutality and snarky dialogue are bitching, or at least commercially favorable. 
Marvel. The pudgy fingers of Dan Didio are all over the premise here, as he never met a goofy Silver Age villain or heroic legacy character he wouldn't assassinate. But initial writer Bill Willingham was no angel in that department. He was doing deconstruction in the early 80s before it was cool, and it was one of the guys who ruined Tim Drake. Plus he drew an issue of Emerald Twilight for what that's worth. However, Willingham fell ill after his second issue and turned over his duties to his writing partner, then credited as Matthew Sturges. Let me remind you this was a seven-issue miniseries that featured a guest art team on one issue, so surely Willingham could have returned, but I guess it was one of those tenacious five-month bugs. Now at least Willingham had the bona fides of Elementals and Pantheon to rest his reputation upon before doing this thing. Sturges was part of that peculiar wave of protege writing partners that was briefly a thing, though Sturges worked out better than, say, Sam Barnes, lasting the entire 50-issue run of the spin-off title Jack of Fables, along with a similar linked House of Mystery revival and a smattering of fill-ins on Willingham's superhero titles, Sturges launched the short-lived Countdown to Mystery and took on the reins of Salvation Run. Wikipedia asserts that the concept of Salvation Run was gifted to DC by no lesser of light than George R.R. R. Martin, the internationally best-selling author behind a global phenomenon, and the first issue is appropriately grim. It wasn't until the second that Willingham's edgelord tendencies began to manifest, and Sturges ran with that as a forebearer to the insufferable inclinations of new DC spelled with an umlau. All the worst shock jock impulses of Mark Miller and the open contempt for the subject matter of Garth Ennis, with none of the wit or relish or imagination. This entire story was as dull and blunt and painful as the rock the Joker uses to bash Simon's squishy brain out of its crunchy, transparent covering. The writing of this book is Bad Oz fanfic, by which I mean the ensemble HBO prison series starring J. Jonah Commissioner Gordon, not the homeland of Yahoo Serious. It is dumb as a long box of countdown spinoffs. A third of all villainous entries from Who's Who fall off the face of the earth, including the entire extended Flash rogues gallery, and no one is even mentioned as bothering to look into where they got to besides Batman and Martian Manhunter? Besides being conspicuous and worrisome as hell, wouldn't the heroes have a lot of free time in their absence to investigate? Lex Luthor, a cross between Donald Trump and Elon Musk, mysteriously stops tweeting and no one says boo? Why would Amanda Waller even want to abduct a former U.S. president with whom she successfully worked extensively as part of his administration and who shares her goals, not least of which include not being stupid enough to draw that kind of attention to an operation? Lex has appeared in almost as many individual issues of ongoing Superman series as the Man of Steel himself. Would he not be missed almost immediately by one of the most powerful beings in existence? Since when is the Joker, the worst abusive boyfriend including Chris Brown, expressed such feminist outrage as to murder for the cause in a very gory, outfit-ruining fashion involving enormous physical exertion? Why wouldn't Simon even attempt to impede his own demise by using his mind control powers on a guy whose only extraordinary ability is appealing to a rabid fan base? If one of the underlying premises of the DCU is that villains don't overwhelm the heroes by sheer numbers is because they're too fractious to unite in that fashion, why do all the Salvation villains split into just two groups with a handful of statistically insignificant third-party voters? And the Joker, well-known psychopath who routinely kills his underlings for no reason, is the head of one of those camps? Shouldn't it be the Joker who runs off with a small splinter group of the most irredeemably ruthless and utterly nuts who survive through surprisingly effective raids on other camps? Wouldn't that be cooler than being a Survivor Island chieftain squabbling with the tribal council or whatever? Almost anyone would be a more credible leader. Speaking of which, Vandal Savage, who has never been depicted as especially libidinous, cedes all control over the collected supervillains in favor of realizing the villainous harem Simon had been killed for suggesting. Didn't we do this already? And why would you diminish a notable multimedia villainess like Giganta, a member of the Legion of Doom, by talking her into Nexium? Stylization aside, who names a sex cold after a GERD medication? Why would a disguised Martian Manhunter willingly walk through a portal to an unknown, likely failed destination once he's determined who's responsible for the villain's disappearances? Why wouldn't his contact on the mission, Batman, send in the Justice League upon the disappearance of Jean Jones? Even 
even if Batman somehow did not know of Amanda Waller's direct involvement, would she not rank high on his list of suspects in the disappearances? And does he not know a Kryptonian with X-ray vision and a super speedster who could canvas the entirety of the state of Louisiana in about five minutes? This isn't a no-man's-land situation where you have to no prize reason why other heroes don't just fix Gotham City because it's a Batman story. Salvation Run is specifically a DC Universe property spanning story that leads into a crossover event. So there isn't even a concurrent crossover event to busy the heroes with. A lot was made about how Blue Beetle was quietly dispatched ahead of Infinite Crisis and to what degree other heroes were culpable in his death due to negligence and dismissal. Meanwhile, Martian Manhunter is left to die on an alien world because Batman never even tried to follow up on the absence of his partner in an ongoing investigation. John Jones was ultimately murdered as a result of this inaction. Then Batman apparently dies as a further result. Literally, no one comes out of this looking good. The heroes never uncover Amanda Waller's operation. I'm not sure if she ever has to reckon with it. The villains are playing Lord of the Flies on Gilligan's Island the whole time, forging patchwork camps out of bamboo and coconut shells. This is despite repeated access to advanced technology that allows them to deus ex machina off the planet at the end of the story at the last minute rather than earn their escape. Finally, the series ends with corny B-list villains slaughtering apocalypsean parademons in droves. So even the new gods get dragged by this thing. Therefore, I give the writing on this, say, three? Someone probably liked this specifically because it was so stupid and vicious. Probably that tool who cosplays a steampunk joker every single year. This is a mean-spirited, ugly story, and Sean Chen draws it that way. Chen was one of the Nobro young trainee artists developed in the early days of Valiant Comics, a company whose house style was defined by Don Perlin. Even in his best days, Chen's characters had the emotional range of Travis Charest and the dynamism of George Tuska. But I have to credit him for the backgrounds and storytelling fundamentals he learned at Valiant, who themselves followed the example of training manuals and giveaway comics from power companies. Sean Chen joins the ranks of people like Joe Staten and Ron Wagner, who have proven themselves capable of competently drawing hundreds of superheroes on a page, despite no one particularly wanting to see them do so. I also have to give a bump for that one issue drawn by Joe Bennett, who does all the same journeyman work as Chen, but also remembers to bring some cinematic style and drama and lighting, and is basically as awesome a comic artist as anyone without ever calling attention to himself in a flashy way. Then again, maybe I should deduct a point, because it just makes it that much more a kick in the teeth when Chen comes back. Look, Sean Chen is fine, and I don't think Walden Wong was a particularly good fit on inks, but the book is still a bit too loose, flat, and blah to rate particularly high. I give the art an inoffensive, even Stephen 5. Eventiness, legacy, despite being the setup, Marsh Manhunter isn't killed until Final Crisis, and his death was one of comics's all-time shortest. Everyone else who died has also either been resurrected, returned in a rebooted universe, or never mattered in the first place. Everyone was mad at the rogues for killing the Bard Island Flash, but did you read that abbreviated run of the Flash? Did Bart come back before or after the New 52? Does it matter? The lead-ins and tie-ins include Checkmate, a book hardly anyone read, and the later issues of the second Catwoman ongoing, before its cancellation, when it was written by the Amazon's attack guy, and had her carrying around her baby with Slam Bradley Jr. You remember that? Not necessarily that you didn't know it, but even if you did, how long has it been since you thought of that unbidden? Didn't Lex and Joker swear to kill each other after this? They didn't. Nobody has to read this book. It had almost no long-term impact, even keeping in mind that it was produced within three years of a line-wide reboot. So I guess I'll give it a three in both regards, as an undeserved kindness, I suppose. Bill Willingham mostly left comics after Fables wrapped up in 2015. The writer, now named Lila Sturges, returned to Vertigo-style fantasy and more positive titles like a Lumberjanes original graphic novel. Hopefully the creators, and comics in general, have found salvation by running from the type of toxic storytelling that produced such nauseating fare as was covered on today's episode. 
Wow, well, my feeling was wrong. Um, okay. <laughs> so that looks like we've got all our scores together now, and um, Sean has been noting down the scores for me this week because I'm lazy. And, Sean, wh- where do you think we're falling on this one now? Okay, so we have... <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, okay, well, it gets a whopping 35 points. 35, okay, gosh. Well, that's that's something, isn't it? So with a score of 35, this is on the same level as War Games, 35. So this is our third lowest-ranked event tied with War Games. So uh, only surpassed in uh, mediocrity by Genesis and Countdown. That seems right, though. That's, that seems fair. I mean, War Games... Actually, War Games and Salvation Run remind me of each other in that they both have really interesting premises that are poorly executed. I would say the difference for me is War Games has a super offensive moment in the treatment of Leslie Tompkins, where Salvation Run is just forgettable. So I, I, that seems fair. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, they're both, well, Salvation Run is shorter, so it has that. <laughs> That's true. Less, yeah. less to buy. Yeah, but yeah, we're going through a rough patch, aren't we? Mm. Anyway, now it's part of the show where I look at feedback, so I'll just go to the website, Sean, and read your comment. Oh, you didn't put one in. There's one from Tim. Tim Price got the comment this time. Tim Price. Are you two ever going to sort this out? Anyway, so Tim said, I still can't believe the three of us reread this train wreck. Oh, he's commenting on his own work on Countdown to Final Crisis. (laughs) That's so Tim Price. He said, Tim is wearing the shirt of the band that he goes to see in concert. <laughs> <laughs> he said, anyway, I still can't believe the three of us reread this train wreck. Oh, that's right. Hicks didn't reread it. Hmm. Oh. Ooh. Anyway, seriously, thanks for having me on the show. I had a great time talking with Hicks and Steve, and props to your editing, editing ability to make me sound coherent. Charmingly and deceptively, yours, Tim. Thanks, Tim. That's very kind of you. We also got an email from Dr. Ange, who um, you know, had thoughts on this, and he said, Always amazed when you have to cover the rougher events in DC history. Like many, I enjoyed 52 and thought maybe, just maybe, DC could capture lightning in a bottle again. When Paul Dini's name was attached, I had high hopes, but they were dashed. Moreover, I actually collected the whole thing as it came out. So who is the fool? The fool who creates the bad content or the fool who buys it? Um, everyone's a fool in this situation, I'd say, Ange. Anyway, for me, the big thing was the Karate Kid Una in Countdown were from a prior timeline. The Legion in the DCU at this point were, were the three-boot Wade Kitson group. I kept hoping that some explanation would come of this involving the Legion. Alas, it didn't. For covers, one only sticks in my head, and it isn't for good reasons. As you say, Mary Marvel is overly sexualized here. This one cover, I remember, is lightning splashing across her chest. It made me feel icky for buying it. And he inserted a shot of that cover so I can feel icky too. (laughs) That was Hmm. nice of him. Yeah. For the best summation of Countdown is an actual conversation I had with a friend as it was coming out. Friend. Lists off comics he has bought. Doesn't mention Countdown. Ange. You aren't collecting Countdown? Friend. No. Why? Is it any good? Uh, and no, no it isn't. Anyway, <laughs> looking forward to the Final Crisis discussion. It is a divisive work, basically coming down to if you like Mon- Morrison looniness or not. Ooh, we will see. Final Crisis is coming, but it's not coming next. Next time, we are going to be doing Amazon's Attack. Oh. Which is, uh, <laughs> 
If you want to see the ladder of all the ratings and rankings we have for all these events, uh, it's getting very long now, uh, but it's all available on WaitingForDoom.com, our fantastic website. Sean has been there. He left comments, not this time because he doesn't care, but uh, previously he has. <laughs> um, you can also send us emails like Ange did to uh, DCOCDcast at gmail.com, and, of course, we're on Twitter at DCOCDcast. So uh, where can people find you, Sean, if people um, uh, want some more of your uh, podcasting stylings or just language use in textual form? <laughs> well, if, if they want to hear me insult more of their favorite bands, uh, they can check out our podcasts on po- the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network. Uh, I co-host Secret Wars and Beyond with Greg Arujo, where we cover every issue of every Marvel superhero Secret Wars miniseries. We cover the beautiful gem that is Volume One that everybody loves because it hits their nostalgia buttons. We covered the you know poop in a rainstorm that is Volume Two, which is it was a blast to cover. The shows are the episodes are fun, but the work is terrible. And we're gearing up for Volume Three by Hickman and Isad Ribic, which is amazing. We're taking a little hiatus from Secret Wars to prep and covering Squadron Supreme by Mark Grunewald and Bob Hall and Paul Ryan, and that's been a ton of fun. And so, yeah, people are interested for, you know, we, we have, we're pretty Marvel-centric, even though we love DC. Uh, we can head on over, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean42AZ, and you can see my comments on uh, WaitingForDoom.com. <laughs> What's the 42AZ? That's Arizona, is it? AZ is Arizona, and 42 is because I read too much Douglas Adams as a child, and so, ah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for being here, Sean. Um, you've made this task much more enjoyable, and um, we'll see you all next time on DCOCD. Yeah.